0: Welcome to season two of My Ministry Breakthrough brought to you by Oxano. I'm your host, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about church leaders telling unfiltered stories of impact in the local church. We're here to celebrate and share those life-changing moments when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens.
1: When you look at the messages that we send, I mean, look at your bulletin or worship guide, look at your website, look at your social media feed, just look at at all the different ways that you are are communicating to other people, right? What is the explicit or implicit call to action for each of those things? Aside from specific teaching moments, like that Sunday morning sermon, the, the, the call to action is show up, show up to Sunday morning worship, show up to small group, show up to vision night, show up to uh, community outreach, show up to youth group. show up to whatever. Right. And we do that because we believe that if people show up, then good things are going to happen. And glory to God, that's often true. However, did Jesus tell us, go ye into all the world and tell people to show up?
0: How much of the regular weekly communication to your congregation is geared toward showing up for something? I would guess for most churches and church leaders, the greatest challenge we wrestle with is getting more people to show up for more things. More people than last week. More people than last year. And if we were completely honest, back in those deep, unverbalized places of our heart, more people than the other church down the street, or more people than the church that gave us such a hard time in our last role. Show up is the message, yet people are showing up for anything less and less. We stream movies instead of seeing them in a theater. We order online instead of going to the big box. We Uber Eats or Grubhub instead of going out. We even, outside of the SEC, watch our football on TV, rather than go and fight the crowds at the stadium. And yet the church keeps trying to convince people to show up. My guest on this episode is Corey Hartman, the founder of Fulcrum Content and a former Jeopardy! champion. So buckle up. I believe Corey is decoding relevance for the local church in the next decade as he asserts that we should stop expecting people to show up and start resourcing them to grow up as disciples outside of the four walls of our churches. In his words, people are not disciples of Jesus because they come to church. People come to church because that's just what disciples of Jesus do. Leaders, there's some big thinking in this episode. And if you're from the South like me, the last 10 minutes explain everything on why we are the way we are. So lean in and listen up to my ministry breakthrough with Corey Hartman, Founder and principal writer at Fulcrum Content in Hollidaysburg, PA. Corey, you uh, are a part of the Oxano team in a pretty unique way. Tell us, tell us about your role, and just give us a snapshot of who you are and, and kind of where you've been in these uh, in these last few seasons of ministry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess I'll start with how I got here. So. Um, I was a pastor for 13 years in two churches, In um, first a, a church in northern New Jersey, greater New York area, and then the second one for 10 years in central Pennsylvania, uh, where I live now. And, um, and so uh, along the way, what I ended up doing, a transition that I ended up making a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, was to launch Fulcrum Content. Uh, which is this company that I started, this outfit that I started to uh, use the written word to extend leaders' reach, to help them to get their ideas that they have into written form, uh, and also to equip churches with tools for disciple-making, you know, of a written nature. So, so,
0: so tell us about Fulcrum Content. What's Where'd you get the name Fulcrum Content for? What's it mean?
1: Yeah, so... You know, I in a way, I wish I had like this amazing story of, you know, how I was going through my life and somebody came up to me and spoke a word of knowledge or something, but it... it this it is didn't. your
0: chance to make that up. I mean, this, oh, this is your chance to make that up. This is your chance to make that up. Yeah. So feel free to go ahead and do that right now.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of one of our core values at Fulcrum Content is deception, you know, so... Yeah. Very good. So good very good. Um, no, I, it was... It, the, the image, uh, so a fulcrum is the point that a lever balances on. So a seesaw, a teeter-totter, whatever you call it, wherever you live in the country. And what I love about that picture of the lever is leverage. You know, that you, mm-hmm. can, you can exert a certain amount of force on one end. that causes you to lift something really big on the other end. And I, I love this idea of leveraging content to make disciples. To, to actually, mm. I mean, churches are content factories. I mean, churches are cranking out content faster than just about anything you can find. I mean, every single Sunday that a pastor is working on their sermon, they're creating content. And this right. is happening all over the place. And so to, to figure out the best possible ways to shape and leverage that content for disciple making is really what I want to do, and so that's where Fulcrum Content got its name.
0: Well, now, and in what ways are? I mean, I guess I'm, I'm kind of my brain's kind of moving here on you know the fact that the church is a content factory, every week creating you know a ton of content. Yet we're not taking advantage of it. Yet there's opportunities to be gained. Tell me what's next. Tell me what what a pastor church may not be doing already in order to, to leverage that content for disciple-making? Like, what, what's next? What's better?
1: Right, absolutely. Well, I think there's, there's really two things that we can describe as to what's next or better. Uh, one of them has to do with the channels that we're using or are we maximizing the channels that we're using? So, for instance, the, the amount of work that is put into uh, a sermon that is orally delivered to the people on Sunday morning. You know, so so the basic is we we work really hard on this content that is going out to the people sitting in the room right now. Got it. Okay. Now some church
0: most of our time during the week is spent on that, right? Most Uh, an inordinate amount of of pastoral time is spent preparing for that Sunday
1: sermon. Yeah. I mean, you know, it certainly depends on your role and, um, you know, Maybe that was
0: just me. (laughs) Maybe that just took me all week. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and it's, and it's, is whether it's inordinate for you or not, I guess depends on what you do and how much time you take on it. I mean, I, I will say sort of as a side note, um, I, I do think that there's sort of, and, and hopefully this isn't too offensive to listeners, but, there's sort of a peeing contest that pastors do in the form of how much time in a week do you, does it take you to work on a sermon? And, and the answer to that question is always the longer, the better. So the guy sitting around when that question is asked, who takes the longest is clearly the one who is most devoted to the ministry of the word. Most spiritual. Yeah. Totally spiritual. Right. Um, You know, they're, they're the, they're the, the Jonathan Edwards, the J.I. Packer, the, you know, whatever, you know, they're, they're really, they're really abiding by it. Um, Personally, I happen to take almost exactly the opposite point of view. I don't think I've ever been in a conversation like that where I have not been the person working on it at least during the week. Um, and proud of that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm proud of it or not, but it's just, it's just a thing. It's just a reality. And so, so inordinate, uh, amount of time I guess it depends on how much time you're spending, but my point okay
0: is they they spend a lot of time,
1: a lot of time, a lot of time, yeah. and and in doing that, um, which is great and which is wonderful. Now some churches will then take a step beyond that, and will mm-hmm. say, all right, well, not only are we going to talk to the people in the room, but we're also going to live stream it, so right. that we're going to talk to other people who can listen, or we're going to record it, and then other people can watch it on YouTube, or other people can download it as a podcast, right? And those are great things. I'm totally in favor of that. But a next step that I'd want people to consider is what if it was possible, and it is, to take a few more hours to convert that sermon into one to three blog posts that are way, way shorter, way, way more abbreviated than the whole shebang? and to get those up on the blog for the church, get them shared on social media. What if it's possible to take a, depending upon your church, uh, your tradition, whatever, 20, 30, 40, 50 minute message and turn it into something that can be consumed, even skimmed in two to five minutes. You know, how many more people might take the same content, right? You're not making new content, the same content, but it reaches more people because it's snackable, right? So that's an example of of a next thing to to go into a different channel that is available, but isn't necessarily always used or taken advantage of. Uh, Another approach that is the next thing has to do with the content itself. And so thinking about, you know, how do we give gospel-shaped answers to the Questions that people are really asking there seems to be sort of a, a divide in philosophy of preaching depend again depending on your tribe depending on your background whatever, with you know felt needs seeker sensitive on the one side and um, expositional verse by verse gospel centered on the other side i don 't see why those are two sides i, I think I think they're one side, um, but it requires because talent. Well, because what I mean by that is um, that the, the people, the questions that people are asking, uh, they, they have the deeper questions in life, right? We're all walking around with the deeper questions in life, um, the deeper questions about who am I and why am I here and what is my purpose and so on and so forth. But, you know, the kinds of things that we're likely to Google are not that question. That that question is like kind of low underneath the the surface of the onion. And we get we got some okay. layers of onion to peel before we get there. And the upper level question might be a question like how do I know that my boyfriend is whether my boyfriend is cheating on me? Or right. how do I talk to my teenage kid who doesn't seem to want anything to do with me right now? Or if you are that teenage kid, Um, how do I deal with, with, uh, being excluded from the group that I want to be a part of? You know, I mean, like there, there are some other questions that are maybe a little bit more practical, so to speak. They're more technical, but they're fraught with meaning for people fraught with meaning, right? Deep, deep meaning. So what does it mean to have a gospel centered, gospel shaped, biblical answer to the question, is my boyfriend cheating on me? And how do I know? Now that's not something I've ever seen as a sermon topic before. I've never heard anybody preach on it. I'm not saying somebody should preach on
0: it. Yeah. At least not, not outside of youth ministry, right?
1: Yeah. Well, well Hey, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I think, I think it's, it's happening uh, to adults at least as much as it's happening to youth. It's true, um, true. But, but the point is, is that that might be a message that isn't necessarily relevant to to a large number of people who are going to show up on Sunday morning. Right. But there are some people that it's the most relevant thing.
0: Right. So, At least momentarily relevant, right? At least momentarily relevant that, that really kind of orients their posture of heart and orients their mind and really receptivity to the gospel messages. When we, you're saying we can speak to that kind of surface level tension that's there, there's almost an avenue uh, the the uh, a vein like kind of an, a vein of ore in some ways where you kind of see the one piece on the surface, but it really goes down to this larger gospel center question. Well, I know this is the content from your your latest book from Show Up to Grow Up. Am I saying that right? I know I'm putting a little southern from Show Up to Grow Up, <laughs> and this is this is kind of what you're where what you're what you're speaking to there, right? You're speaking to re, repositioning ourselves. As, as content purveyors, the gospel is the content, purveyors that content, not just to uh, fill the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but also repackage that, maybe even package it in the first place in order to really be effective in, in, this, in this new world of communication we have right now. Tell us about the title, though. What Show up to grow up. What, where does that come from? What is that all about?
1: Yeah, so... Uh, one of the things I like to talk about in the book is this famous quote by Woody Allen. Okay. Okay. Um and and
0: uh, Theologian for sure, right? Of yeah, some so, sort.
1: <laughs> well, a, a very, very bright guy. Uh I'm not a big fan, but but he is uh, he's very he's very astute. He's a very smart dude. I can't say I've ever read any other, you know, ministry book with a quote by Woody Allen. So I hope I'm the first. Um but Woody Allen famously said, showing up is 80% of life. And I, mm. I bet that there are some listeners who have heard that. Maybe they didn't know yeah. it came from him, yeah. but, but it did come from him. Yeah. Okay. Showing up is 80% of life. So, so the way that we commonly hear that or quote that is like, hey, you know, at the very least, just show up. Like, just be there. And show up for the opportunities. The opportunities will emerge and you'll yeah. you'll make it someplace in life. You just show up, which is not altogether untrue. I mean, I don't.
0: I mean, that was college for me. I think <laughs> 80% of college for me was just showing up. And well, let me back that down. 75% of college for me was just showing up, especially my <laughs> freshman physics class. That was that was pretty rough.
1: That's right. I mean, so it worked for Brian. So, you know, I mean, it, it works for everybody. Yeah. I mean, so there is some truth to that. But, um, the, the, the thing that's odd is that we seem without necessarily consciously thinking it through operating church, as if that is gospel truth, as if it's holy Mm. writ. Because when you look at the messages that we send, I mean, look at your bulletin or worship guide, look at your website, look at your social media feed. Just look at at all the different ways that you are are communicating to other people, right? What is the explicit or implicit call to action for each of those things? Aside from specific teaching moments like that Sunday morning sermon, the, the, the call to action is show up. Show up to Sunday morning worship. Show up to small group. Show up to vision night show up to uh, community outreach, show up to youth group, show up to whatever. And we do that because we believe that if people show up, then good things are going to happen. And glory to God, that's often true. However, did Jesus tell us, go ye into all the world and tell people to show up? You know, he's talking to his 12 apostles or the 11, and he's saying, guys, you know, whatever you do, you know, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you to get people to show up. You have to get people to show up. You know, I I don't remember reading that, you know, in the New Testament.
0: Get get them to show up to something, just some event. Something, some
1: anything, just get them to show up, then good things will happen. So, so obviously, I mean, I'm not, I'm not at all against showing up totally in favor of showing up. I show up. I, I raise my kids to show up. I'm big into it. But when, when the, the vast bulk of our content, and that is especially that is outward facing you know, on our website, social media, whatever, is telling people show up, um, what are we really communicating there? Is, that, is our primary message akin to what the Lord told us that our primary message was supposed mm. to be? I'm not saying we, we will ever or should ever get rid of communications telling people when things and where things are going to be and inviting them to come. I, I want to bring balance to the mix so that more of what we're putting out there and not just stuff you have to commit 45 minutes of your time to listen to, you know, in a podcast episode, but but little morsels are actually directly sending a grow up message to people's lives in their personal and spiritual growth, according to the message that the Lord has given us.
0: So it's not advocating, hey, stop telling people to show up to things. But it is saying, hey, listen, when you think about how the totality of all you communicate, at least communicate opportunities to grow up into something as much as you communicate opportunities to show up for something.
1: That's exactly is that fair. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's it. I mean, so, so some of what we communicate, and again, this is even before anybody shows up, is how great would it be if we communicate, try this? You know, try mm-hmm. this. So in other words, you don't, you don't have to wait. You don't have to, you know, wait for Sunday or wait for the right Sunday or wait for the Sunday that you don't already have 15,000 other things going on and, you know, yeah, your yeah. niece's gymnastics uh, meet and, you know, you're, you're going canoeing with your friend that day or whatever, you know, don't, you don't have to wait for that to just try out the Christian life. I mean, just Mm -hmm. try it. So one of the things that Jesus said in, in John that, um, we don't quote a whole lot, (laughs) but is kind of interesting is he says, "If, if anybody wants to know whether I come from the father, he should obey my teaching. Which is really, really interesting because to a, at a certain level, and especially if we take it out of context, it it can offend our Protestant notion of saved by grace through faith. Right, um, right. But, but what Jesus is saying is he's saying like, look, you know, try it out. Just try it, you know? Like I'm yeah. telling you some things to do, you know? I've given you this thing called, you know, that people will later call the Sermon on the Mount, you know? I'm, I'm teaching you, how to look at the law of Moses through a different lens. Just try it. And, and if you try it, you'll find out whether I come from the father or not. And mm-hmm. we can do that with content. We can, we can talk to the skeptical person. We can talk to the secular person. We can talk to the person who's disaffected from church and, and say, before you even come, even we're not even asking you to come yet. Just try this Jesus thing, just take this one teaching of his and put it into practice in your life this week and see what happens. And if that happens, guess what? People's lives are going to get better because Jesus can be trusted. And as they start to find some value in that, well, then the, 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 the encouragement to show up becomes a lot more interesting and a lot more compelling in a place and day in which fewer and fewer people are showing up to anything, anywhere, especially church.
0: Well, and I think that's what, what, I know and hear plagues pastors the most. And it's kind of the hardest for, I think, us all to wrap our brains around. I mean, you know, the the average person probably, and I could look up the statistics, but I'm not right now, probably, you know, comes once a month. The average, I would say, involved church member, you know, yet they think they come much more mentally, but, but for the canoeing trip and, you know, sister's birthdays for those things. So, people are showing up less, but they still maintain the same level of perceived connectedness, right? They still call it my church, even though versus 10 years ago, even, but certainly 20 years ago, attendance rates are down. And in some cases, giving is remaining the same, which is kind of of fogging the lens a little bit on what's really happening Uh, in some senses. And so what I hear you advocating for is, is like re-engaging through communication, not cajoling, right? But really kind of crafting messages that encourage people to grow first and then attend. Is that, am am I right in that?
1: Yeah, you are right in that. The, The way I would put it is that what our assumption has been, again, almost entirely unconscious right? I mean, not, not at all thought through, more of the, the inheritance of, of, our, uh, of, of our society and our civilization and how we've done church through time and so forth, is that you need to show up in order to become a disciple. Hmm. And what I think we need to do is flip that, which I also think is more biblical, and to say a disciple is someone who shows up. So, right. so rather than put the, put the attendance ahead of discipleship, we need to put discipleship ahead of attendance. Okay. I think but, it,
0: but that's easy said, Corey, right. that's, that's easily said. <clears throat> how's it, I mean, how's it done? Is it, I mean, it can't, it's gotta be more than just a blog post
1: or two, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the blog post, and this is, this is so important as well, Brian, a blog post or whatever the content I'm talking about, this is, this is crucial. That content does not of itself do any of what I'm saying needs to be accomplished. Zero. What accomplishes it is people. What accomplishes it are the followers of Jesus in your church. Sending out, you know, sort of massively or having available, massive distribution or just having available some really good content on your website isn't really going to matter, and certainly not nearly as much as the individual believer in your church who knows that person who's wondering if her boyfriend is cheating on her, who knows that dad who's wondering why he can't connect to mm-hmm. his teenage child, right? And, and who, who shares that, who says, look, I just read this the other day, and okay. this might help you. And and that is is a step, right? That is a a move, that is a micro step in a relationship between a follower of Jesus and a non-follower of Jesus. But that is simply a vehicle. That's simply a way to take a next step in one person sharing the gospel with another person. That is what moves the needle. That is what reaches people. That has always been what reaches people. It always will be what reaches people. And, and so what I'm advocating is, this is part of a, a broader project, way broader than just this book, but about reconceiving and reinvesting in what does it mean for the church to make disciples? How is the church going to make disciples um, in, the, in the networks of people's relationships beyond the four walls that people are showing up to less and less so that those disciples <laughs> are made outside the walls? so that they will come inside the walls because that's what followers of Jesus do. Followers of Jesus go to church. Followers of Jesus prioritize church above other things. That's what they do. But they're not going to learn that in the church. They're going to learn that from their Christian friend outside the church. And so good content can be that tool put into their hands, like the tracts of old, uh, you know, the gospel tracts of old that actually help people to do that in their personal lives.
0: Well, I love that. And what I'm hearing you <clears throat> say in that, Corey, is that social media are, is one of those networks, one of those networks that our people are in, apart from the four walls of the church, that that sharing could take place in sports teams, you know, travel ball teams, some of those things is another network where if we're diligent about posting helpful enough content, maybe equipping our people to share with the people around him that are hurting and struggling and have questions. Yeah. You know, in that way, I, it occurs to me that like Facebook could be the new Monday night visitation. I mean, I grew up in a, in a Southern Baptist context where Monday night was uh, set aside as high and holy for uh, a substandard meal at the church and then to go out and knock on people's doors, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, we have a ring doorbell. You know, we're not answering the door if somebody weird shows up. We're not <laughs> answering the door, hardly any at all. But <clears throat> let me be honest. You know, I think I think we don't know what to replace that "quote unquote" visitation moment with. And what I'm hearing you say is, well-designed, well-curated content shared appropriately could be that next Monday night visitation or check tracked, you know, with the four spiritual laws or or whatever in there uh, to do that.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, we. You know the the question of evangelism, right? So evangelism for as long as you and I have been alive, as long as we have been in the church, and maybe before that, has been a scary word. Oh crap, evangelism! Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. like you know, it's it's scary because a it comes
0: with that word testimony. moan, oh, moan
1: you, know, oh, you know, yeah, right. So 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 I mean, it's scary because a um, I'm afraid of you know, being, you know, looked at weird, uh, rejected, whatever, uh, by the person I'm sharing my faith with, with, which is, you know, partly, um, is sometimes a legitimate fear. Uh, A lot of it is our own damage that we're, that we're carrying in with us that, that the devil wants to pump up in our minds as great as possible as this big boogeyman. Um, but, but, but the other thing on the other side is the guilt that we're not doing it. So there's the fear of doing it, but there's the guilt of not doing it. So there's, there's no winning with, yeah. <laughs> with talking about evangelism. Yeah. And, and truthfully, maybe that's one of the reasons we don't talk about it as much. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You, you, you go around to a lot more churches than I do. You see a lot more than I do. I remember growing up that evangelism, even if it was a little bit of a, a scary word, was a word. It was a word in the church lexicon. Yeah. And I do think that less and le- that's less and less of a word in the yeah. in the church dictionary anymore. Um and and so what but but one of the things that um makes it difficult for people to do it is when they're not equipped. You know, it's right, right. It, you know, to tell people like you should do this, okay. Um you should want to do this, oh okay, maybe. Um but then
0: you should be able to do this. And I think that's where the real the real challenge is is like yeah. well i may be able to do cuz listen i you know i did the mission trips right i had the you know, the four spiritual laws romans were memorized but it was always the question after the question that i was most scared of like i could get through the surface level but if you ask a question beyond i think that's probably where most people live is either you're right uh they're they're past or, or what they remember of their past or how they just acted in front of this person last week is, the big, is a big obstacle. And then the fear that, that whoever they're sharing their faith with or evangelizing, which I think is really the word that we're all running from, is the word evangelizing, not evangelism. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, I just think of the, the cultural, socio-political of evangel. I mean, there's so much baggage with that word. It's a political party now not a posture of, of believers in, in kind of an overflow of their life. And so there's this question of, is there a better way? And I think that's what you're answering in the book. I think you're answering there is a better way to begin that. Obviously, it's not the whole conversation, but it is a better way to begin the conversation than we've ever had before. And I liked a little bit of the jujitsu, Corey, of of leveraging this social media channels of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and those things to really saying, hey, listen, let's, instead of talking about how these things weaken our faith and weaken the connection between people and are a stumbling block, what if this could actually be a strength in this new evangelical age where we share the gospel through these things, but it takes it takes a little bit more effort on the, on the part of our church leaders, doesn't it? It takes us thinking, most, most messages, most sermons are already in, in some form manuscripted, if not word for word, at least pretty well, where it wouldn't take long for someone uh, in the church or someone like you who serves church leaders from the outside uh, to take that content and, and reduce it down. Why are you so much of a fan of the written word? over video, because it seems that everything social media these days is, is image driven, video driven. But what I'm hearing you say is the, is the blog post. And does anybody read blog posts anymore? Because I, I post a lot of them, but I'm not <laughs> sure anybody reads them. Maybe they're just mine. Maybe mine are just bad. But what is it, what is it about the written word for you yeah. that, that really does this?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Well, first of all, as to does anybody read blog posts anymore? I think the answer is yes. Um, is, is the blog post, you know, the, the sexy thing that it was when the word blog was first invented, you know, like 15, 20 years ago. No.
0: Which by um, the way, is not a sexy sounding word, right? It really is. Nobody isn't. says, nobody goes blog. No, it just doesn't work. Right. <laughs> no, so it just,
1: just did. I think you just, well, you just did. You're the first.
0: <laughs> read my blog. There you go. There you go. That's been done now.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been disturbing. Um, but you're gonna get you're get right you just doubled or tripled your number of blog readers because yeah. of what you just said yeah. um, so, <laughs> so you know I guess here's here's why i'm I'm the fan of it, so as to getting readers on it and again this is this is key what has what happened some time ago, and I am gonna swing back to this question of 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 why writing why the written word but 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 for 20 years now, you know, I mean, social media hasn't been around for 20 years, but, but this idea of the internet as an important thing that churches should be involved with has been around for 20 years. For, for 20 years now, there have been many voices saying the internet, uh, the online world, social media apps, whatever the new technology is, is this brave new world. And the church needs to jump into it and seize it. Okay. And we've been saying that for a really, really long time, and a lot of churches have done that. And in particular, um, evangelical Protestant churches have done it. We, we as, a, as, a, as a group on the whole religious scene, have an unusual um, inclination to be pretty conservative and traditional with what we say. but eager to adopt whatever the new technique is as to how we say it. Now I'm not saying every church right. but I'm saying whatever the new vehicle is there's always somebody out there who's wanting to seize it. So the Bible app, YouVersion, right? Yep. Yep. You know YouVersion was literally one of the very first apps released on the App Store for for iOS. I mean it was literally one of the first, like the first generation of just the first few hundred, it was one of those, right? Now, were most people thinking about that? No, but a few people at Life Church were, so, so they did yeah. it. So we, we, we t- we're always talking about it, but even for as long as we've had this internet thing, I think we're just still trying to figure out how to do it. I, I truly believe that. Hmm. I, I truly believe we've been sitting with it for a generation, still trying to figure out, how to best tailor the content. And one of the things that we've missed along the way is the relationship between what happens online and what happens offline. We, we, it's sort of like we've swung from people are going to be saved because their friend tells them about it to people are going to be saved because we put really cool stuff online. And I think the answer sure. is it's when the two of the things are working together that we actually yeah. get somewhere, you know. So, so we write the stuff online that then is the tool for that personal relationship. And that's what leads to more blog readers. It's, it's when there are 10 people, 15 people, whatever in the church that say, it is part of my ministry as a Christian. It is part of my ministry as a believer, part of my volunteer role in the church. And just as a disciple is, I'm going to take these things that are these cool little like felt needs, gospel shaped morsels, and I'm going to drop them into my social media feed and see who in my circle of friends hits like on that because I'm going to follow up with that person and say, hey, what'd you like about it? Or that was pretty cool, huh? Or did you know that my pastor is talking about that this week? You want to come with me you know, and talk about that? It's, it's the integration of the online and offline worlds. I think that's where the magic is that we've had, we've had trouble um, making happen. And I think that the written word is valuable in part because it is so snackable and so skimmable. Somebody can see a headline and might literally hit like just because the headline is good. Um, I can't relate to that, but there are people who do that. Um, But also somebody can click it. I can
0: I can totally relate to that.
1: Yeah. 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 You're coming clean. Um, (laughs) But, but also somebody can click that can, can look at the headers skim it in just a few seconds and decide whether it's worth their time. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, if they see a video, even if that video is, is more than two minutes long, there are people like myself who will say, I don't have two minutes literally, but, but they might click something and say, I do have 20 seconds to see if I want to spend two minutes on this written thing. So I I think that video is amazing and awesome. We should be doing more. I think the audio is amazing and awesome. We should be doing more. I don't think that it renders literacy obsolete. Not yet, anyway.
0: That's that's great. Where where did this passion come from, Corey? What was the turning point for you from pastoring the local church to leading fulcrum content?
1: Yeah, well, the turning point is interesting because the turning point didn't come from passion in the sense of – I can't wait to do this next awesome thing. That's going to reach people for Christ. It came from passion in the sense of like the passion of the Christ where he's like suffering and getting beat up. (laughs) Um, It came
0: from different kind of passion altogether. There,
1: a Different kind of passion altogether. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so my story is that in uh, the church that I last served, Um, there was a lot of conflict and in, in that course of the pastoral tenure, um, a significant amount of which I actively contributed to, uh, I'm not going to, not going to avoid responsibility for that, but, but over that season of, of, uh, 10 years, the first half of that 10 years, um, you know, there, there was, it, it was a troubled situation and there was, um, there was conflict that was either flaring up or was just kind of hovering below the surface. Mm. And we really had a turning point about midway through my tenure where we broke the back of a lot of that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, very, very grateful for that. And we had several years um, moving on from that. we were very unified and very positive and really good ministry. A lot of challenges dealing with the challenge of participation frequency that we've talked about here in this episode. But, um, but still, it was, it was pretty unified. And then, um, within the last the last year, you know, the tenth year, the 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 the, this unity reared its ugly head in a really unexpected way, um, in a really difficult and painful and challenging way, and it and it led me. um, I wasn't run out of town on a rail. Uh, I left the church with a very positive relationship with the church, very very positive um but it was so much of a so much of a strain going through that period that um i was done i was toast mm-hmm. um i couldn't i couldn't keep going and mm-hmm. um and so i ended up walking away literally with nothing to walk into um mm-hmm. with a wife and four kids and um it was after that that the lord led me into fulcrum content um, mm-hmm. and it was it was you know, is the Indiana Jones step off the cliff? Is there a bridge there? Kind of a thing, you know. And and one of my uh, favorite
0: scenes that I think is underrated in the in the in the pantheon of cinema moments, where he kind of scatters the pebbles out.
1: Yes, yes. So cool. So amazing. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think so that, that's a great picture of faith and following Christ, though, right? It's taking the step, even if you're not sure exactly that the step is there.
1: Yeah. That that's. That's exactly right. And I, I, I've come to believe that in a, in a person's life, there are probably going to be, you know, two or three, maybe four moments of faith of that magnitude. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I mean, we, we've got to walk by faith every day. And there are things that God calls us to have faith in every day. But I do believe that in every life, there are a few hinge points that are really really scary. I mean, where you really are stepping off a cliff and um, it's god or nothing. I mean it, re- mm. it really is. And uh, I know that was that was one for me. That's for darn sure. What
0: would you say to another pastor who may be listening right now and feeling themselves in that moment, feeling like, you know, I I don't think I I you know, I don't know what's next, but I know this isn't it. Or, or maybe unsure whether continuing in the past. I mean, you've been there, done that. You, you stepped out. What would you say to a pastor who's kind of got their foot in the air?
1: Mm. Well, I think the first thing that I would do is I would, I would look that pastor in the eye if I could, and I would say, God loves you. Hmm. I mean, I, I, think, I think that's the most important thing because when we're in that moment, and it depends on what drives us to that moment, but when we're in that moment, we're often in a situation where it can seem really hard to believe that God loves us, um, that, that he approves of us, that he's proud of us, that he smiles when he thinks about us um, and that, that he's prepared for this moment and that the choice that we make in that moment, whether to leap or not leap itself has no bearing whatsoever on whether he loves us or not. Um, that that is just complete and full and settled. Uh, I, I think that's the first and most important message to send um, that I would want to share with somebody. And I think then everything flows from that, you know, having a, having a grasp of your calling in life, um, is so important. In fact, that's why I'm, I'm so very, very proud and very, very honored that, uh, Will Mancini invited me to, um, to, to collaborate with him on his book, Unique Designing the Life God Dream for You, which is going to come out, uh, early next year, uh, which is all about finding your calling in life. Um, and and so so knowing your calling in life is critical but also that that decision that you make to leap or not leap has to be for the kingdom and has to be for others and not just for yourself now saying that i want to qualify that because that that can be a really subtle and complex decision and i want to i'll i'll give my my own life as an example of this okay so it, it, can, it can be, for one thing, it can be easy to say, I need to do this next thing because there are more people who need to be reached than the people I'm reaching right now. The world needs what I do, so I'm going to do this next thing, when in fact, what's actually in our heart, soul, and spirit is the mixture of motives between that, which is very much there, and I want to see my name in lights or I'm sick of this job and I want to do something more or there's more money to be made this other way. Um, or, you know, whatever, whatever those other things might be. Um, but, but the other way is that, um, sometimes there are, there are moments where, um, doing things for self actually are for the sake of others. So in, in my case, when I was, um, when I was coming to the end of my pastoral tenure, it was a situation where I I knew from the Lord in March of that year that I was going to be moving on. And I, and I began actively seeking what is this next thing that God is moving me on to. And I really thought it was going to be another pastoral job. And it wasn't until November of that year that I, that there were, there were, you know, opportunities that didn't quite come. And there was one opportunity that I was sure was going to happen. It was like a done deal. And then at the end, no, we're not going to hire you. Um, and that really put me into a tailspin because I'd really been putting a lot of eggs into that basket. And it was at that point that I realized for the sake of my church, I can't keep doing this Mm -hmm. because my church will keep me like they will, they will, they like me, (laughs) they love me. We've gotten through tough stuff. The people who are left think I'm awesome. Um, They love me very, very much. (laughs) They will never send me away. They would be happy to keep me forever, but they deserve better than a Mm. pastor who is constantly thinking about the next thing. They deserve Mm. better than that. And they don't know that I'm stringing them along, but I am stringing them along. And for them to move forward in their ministry, I need to step aside. And that was the final thing. That tipped me into, I'm going to walk away. Now, once I made that decision, then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a mess. Like I'm (laughs) I'm beaten, I'm bruised, I'm tired. I'm not mentally healthy. I'm not in a position to really help and love my family. I mean, there's all kinds of, all kinds of reasons for me, for me to move on that. But really what it came down to is what is the best for the people I'm currently serving? Is it best for the people I'm currently serving for me to move on? And, and I, I would really want any pastor who's thinking about moving on to think about that question. Is it best for the people I'm serving for me to leave? Um, and I, I think that, that that's essential um, to, to at least address it, even if you can't fully answer it um, before, you, before you take that leap.
0: I love that pastor's heart. I love the pastor's heart that at the end of the day, you know, you're still in some ways pastoring other pastors uh, through the work you get to do and through encouraging, challenging them to think beyond kind of our current schema of, you know, church life. Uh, what does evangelism really look like, and can we can we track to a better way? And I'm just I'm convinced that. There's been encouragement top to bottom in this episode for a leader who's wanting to get better, uh, especially in their communication, senses they need to communicate more than just show up for something else, and for someone who's not sure if they can get better. Um, And so, thanks for that. There are three questions I ask every podcast guest, Corey, um, and it kind of provides some consistency and, and fun for me as well. I'm not going to lie. So here's the first question. What's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to the heart of God?
1: So one of the things that I practice every day, I mean, I do a lot of the, you know, kind of the usual, the conventional stuff, you know, open your Bible and read it, that sort of thing. Um, but one of, the thing I, one of the things I like to do is to use my phone to set reminders on it that go off every day at a certain time that remind me to do some spiritual practice. Pray mm-hmm. for this specific thing, you know, or sing a worship song right now, you know, or something like that. So I, so I build into my, into my life. I have at any time between two and four of those reminders every day to stop what I'm doing and to do one of those things. One example is that I have a, uh, a series of uh, scriptures that's on a note on my phone, one for each day of the week. There's seven of them that all have to do with humility. They're all um, encouragements to be humble in different ways. You know, so one of them, for example, is from the book of James chapter four, you know, God opposes the proud but give grace to the humble, you know, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And so that will go off and I'll read that because I think that pride is the absolute easiest sin to fall into. And the hardest to detect for ourselves. It's pretty easy to detect from the people around us looking at us, hard for us to detect in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And man, a lot of mornings I've 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 needed to read that scripture and kind of get, you know, gently gently corrected by the Holy Spirit um, by reading one of those.
0: Why is it important for you to put it as a reminder in your phone? Is that is it just you won't you won't remember otherwise or Oh yeah, I it?
1: absolutely won't. I mean there there are there are certain things that I do as part of the routine that's built into my day, but that, those things generally happen before, you know, eight in the morning. Like, you know, I I could, I could set a reminder, you know, in my head that while I'm brushing my teeth, I'm going to do the following, but anything after 8am, man, I'm in the flow of whatever work I need to get done or whatever else is going on. So I need to be interrupted if I'm going to touch God and hear him at some other point in the day. So that's why I use the phone to do that.
0: I love that concept of I need to be interrupted because I think in, in our Christian leadership culture, we've set ourselves as uninterruptible and we've kind of made uninterruptibility a hallmark of spiritual success or a, or a stepping stone. When we read the gospels, Jesus was completely interruptible. In fact, that's where he did the most ministry was in the interruptions. And so I love that idea that we might set ourselves up to be interrupted. I just want to know when the most awkward place that you were interrupted to sing a worship
1: song was. <laughs> Have you,
0: ever, you ever been walking in the, down the aisle of Kroger and just, you know, singing how great is our God? I mean, is that?
1: Uh, you know, I really should be doing that. Um, <laughs> truth, truth be told, um, I, uh, with, with the worship song one, I, I do generally set it for uh, in the morning. Safe at-
0: time. Safe, save times,
1: save time. Usually, usually, honestly, this is often when it will happen. Um, uh, I currently share space with, uh, a friend of mine, share office space that is a 10 minute walk from my house. I live in a small town and, uh, I love being able to walk. So very often, um, I might, I might sing a worship song while I'm walking to work. Um, so that's a common time that I might, that I might do that. But also what will happen is I'll hit snooze on those things so, like, it might it might get snoozed till, like, 8 p.m. Uh, yeah. And then I sit down at the piano and uh, and I go at it for for five minutes, you know. So. I just
0: imagine if if I was passing you while you're walking to work and you're singing, I think I'd give you a dollar. I think I'd pull over and give you a dollar and then have <laughs> kind of a life lesson moment with my kids. Kids, this is why, uh, you know, you don't do drugs. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love that, Corey. I've given you a hard time, but I think that's, yeah. I think that's a discipline we could all grow in, and the technology again, you know your perspective on technology being able to enhance and, and make our spiritual lives better, not just be an, an obstacle, is huge. Question number two: if you go back to your first year of ministry and tell yourself one thing, what would it be?
1: I would tell myself in my first year of ministry i would look i would sit myself down and say. You will bear much fruit in ministry, but not much this year or next year or really for the next decade, decade and a half, (laughs) because that's not what this time is for. Hmm. This time, which composes about the same length as half of your life so far, is primarily about growing you into the kind of branch that will grow fruit someday. Wow. And you are going to be obsessed with fruitfulness and usefulness and impact no matter what I tell you, which is fine because it's your job to help people grow in Christ and it's your job to do good for people and you will. But I'm just telling you in God's plan, the next long season of your life is not mainly about how he's going to use you to help people become like Christ, but mostly about how he's going to use people to help you become like Christ. And they're going to help you become like Christ by accident and without trying to, and sometimes by being really, really annoying. And, and it just will inspire work. yourself, right? That's right. In spite of themselves. And it, and it will work because you will bear much fruit someday. So try to relax and don't be afraid to relax a little, that if you relax a little, you're going to relax too much because you're not capable of relaxing too much. So relax as much as you can. And, you know, that will be about half as much as you need to.
0: I love it. Love it. Question number three, is there one book you consistently recommend or give as a gift other than From Show Up to Grow Up by Corey Hartman, available now on Amazon and other online retailers?
1: <laughs> um, so first of all, I never give books as a gift. And the reason that I never give books as a gift is because it is two, twofold. One is I feel like giving a book, I know that lots of people do it. Lots of people love to do it. I feel like giving a book as a gift is sort of like saying, you need this. And you know, so so here's a book. You're giving and somebody a
0: uh, task, really, what you're doing. is You're just giving them something else to do when you give somebody a book,
1: right? Yeah, I'm, I'm giving them something to do that I think they need to do. So here's a book. Yeah. And while you're at it, here's a breath mint. And here's some acne medication. You know, here yeah. you go. Here's your package. Be a better you. Um, but, but, But also because, yeah. So if I give them a gift, then they feel the obligation like, Oh, well, if they're like me, they already have a stack of books, like, you know, nine inches tall sitting beside their bed that they haven't read. So I'm just adding something onto that stack and putting the social pressure onto them to actually read it so that then they will say, thanks for the book. Right. So I don't want to do that to people. So I don't give people books. But as far as recommending a book, here here's a book that I'm, I'm pretty sure is not going to be recommended by anybody else on your podcast. Okay. Is You're it from Woody
0: Allen? Is it? It's not no. a Woody Allen <laughs> memoir. Okay. No.
1: Because okay. I, um, I can't edit no, that out. No, it has nothing to do with him. No. The, uh, the book that I probably recommend most often is a book called Albion's Seed, Four British Folkways in America by David Hackett Fisher.
0: Say that right. one more time.
1: Albion's Seed. Albion is spelled A-L-B-I-O-N apostrophe S. Uh, it is a uh, it is a uh, historic or legendary sort of name, poetic name for Britain. Uh, Albion Seed, four British folkways in America. And it is by a historian named David Hackett Fisher who wrote this big, like 800, 900 page tome. Um, maybe it's not that long, but it's a big book uh, in the 1980s. And what Fisher describes is that Before the Revolutionary War, there were four big migrations from four different parts of Britain, four different areas in Britain, in four different generations, for four different reasons, of four different groups of people who settled four different parts of British North America. And those four became regional cultures. That then spread west and created the regional diversity and cultural diversity um, that is America. And you could add to those four a fifth one, which is New Netherland, that is around Greater New York. That's a fifth one that that didn't really move west, but it just got very very populous. And those five together. Again, there are some other ones you can look at at uh, you know South Florida you know, influenced by the Spanish Caribbean. You can look at Louisiana influenced by the French. You can look at the American Southwest with old colonial Mexico, although that's been heavily hybridized by settlers from the East um, from the, from the original 13 colonies. But, but those, those four plus new Netherland, those five cultural groups um, and then how they blended with each other as they moved to the West coast, are the explanation of why this country is so diverse and why different places are so different. When I read that book, which like 80% of it is a description of these four groups of people in colonial times, and then saw him build the bridge to the present, I felt like I was rediscovering my own country for the first time. It made so much sense of my life, my cultural background other people I've encountered from other places, the places I've ministered that it seemed like I couldn't see eye to eye with them. It all made sense. It all made sense. So there you go. Albion seed. Get
0: it. I'm just, I mean, it sounds intriguing, but it sounds pretty heady. And I just want to know what does it say about Southerners? Those of us that live down Tennessee, Alabama way, just give me, give me a two sentence snapshot. Why are we the way we are? I mean, sweet tea, biscuits, you know, come right. on.
1: Okay, so, so first off, you got to understand that, that it's not Southerners because there are two Southerners, okay? There are two kinds. There's the lower South, the coastal South, and there's the upland South, Appalachia and spreading West from that. Two different groups of people. Okay,
0: so Appalachia. I'm in, I'm in the Nashville, Tennessee area, which is- There you
1: go. It,
0: and grew up in the North Alabama area. So we, yeah. call, we call them- L.A., down on lower Alabama. I got that. Yep. Yep. So, Appalachia. Yes. I mean, other than, other than the, the propensity to, to make moonshine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why, why, are, why are they the way they are? Why are you the way you are? Okay. are we are? We are. Yeah. All right. So, the settlers of uh, Appalachia, which in colonial times is called the back country, because the front was facing the Atlantic Ocean, was facing Europe. The back country was behind, right? West was back. So the people who settled there came, settled were the last of the four migrations. They settled there in the mid-1700s. They came from the borderlands, which is where uh, Northern England and Lowland Scotland come together and from Northern Ireland as well because many of them had gone to Northern Ireland before. The people who lived in that area had spent literally centuries as the pawns being manipulated in a bloody chess match between the kings of Scotland and England, who fought fought over a line on a map that they never personally visited, but that they each were trying to grab from the other monarch. And so in that situation where you couldn't go for more than 50 years without there being a bloody war where lots of people die, and where depending upon what year you're in, you're on one side of the line or you're on the other side of the line, you get impressed into one army, you get impressed on the other, you get to a point where you do not trust any government, you do not trust any power from far away, you don't trust anybody who tells you what to do. The Come on: Only people you can trust are your clan.: Roll the tide. Only ones you can trust. Roll so, tide. So, it, so it sets up a situation where we're the insiders, or, or, or we're the outsiders to them. So we're far, far from cultural power, and we have an attitude about that, But at the same time, the people who are outsiders to us, we cannot trust because we've been screwed over so many times before. Yankees. and And but we're fiercely loyal. We're fiercely loyal to our own. I mean, right or wrong, we are loyal. Um, and at the same time, the, the, the curious mixture is, at the same time that there's great distrust of the powers that be, there's also great patriotism and great willingness to fight and die for one's land and, and for one's flag, whatever that is. And there's an honor code around that um, and a willingness to sacrifice and suffer around that. Um, And there's also a great faith in, in a sort of um, at worst fatalism, but at best divine providence that no matter what is going on, God's going to work it out. Um, That, that is, that is part of that whole ethos. That's
0: that's uncanny. I mean, I was messing around at first, but you're, I mean, you're 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 speaking to the heart of a Southerner. I'm
1: reading your mail.
0: Uh, <laughs> you're reading my mail. I mean, come on, roll tide. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, hey, so, Corey. Thanks. For,
1: one oh, I'm more, I'm one sorry. More thing on that. One more. Yeah. Thing one more
0: thing. To, come on.
1: That you're probably gonna. You, that you might. You might edit out. But so Northern Alabama, right? And yeah. um, not where you are in Nashville, but Eastern Tennessee, and Western North Carolina, and West Virginia. Guess who? Uh, the, the folks in that, that area. Guess who they were primarily loyal to during the Civil War.
0: That area primarily yeah. loyal to themselves.
1: True. And each other. But they fought for the North.
0: Yeah. Why?
1: Now there were there were there were many who fought for the South, but they primarily fought for the North. The reason they fought for the North is because at that time, state governments were much more powerful than the federal government. Hmm. So the state governments, Confederate state governments, were the powers that be. And the federal government was the one who would get the Confederate state governments off their back. So they fought for the North because they were fighting against their governments. How about that? So that German... So so William Tecumseh Sherman and his famous March to the Sea, okay, where he's burning all through Georgia, from Atlanta to Savannah, his personal bodyguard during that campaign was the 4th Alabama Cavalry, U.S. The state of Alabama sent at least four cavalry regiments to fight for the North, probably from where you're from. They were his personal bodyguard about that? That's,
0: that's, I I don't know if I'm fascinated by that. And I want to read up more on that and understand more because it is intriguing to me. I think I'm most fascinated that we can, in the course of one podcast, talk about the future of social media and communication, talk about the heart of evangelism, speak to the heart of a pastor wrestling with what's next, and provide a brief history lesson, not just on the U.S. Civil War, but really just the whole history of our country. And Corey Hartman, that's exactly why I wanted you to be on this podcast. <laughs> I knew that there is something for everyone in this episode. So thanks for being my guest. I appreciate a little bit of time this afternoon. And man, I love from show up to grow up. I can't see, can't wait to see uh, what's coming next from that uh, beautiful mind of yours. That <laughs> that we've just all gotten a glimpse into just now.
1: It's such an honor, Brian. It's just absolutely my pleasure, pleasure to be on your show. Thanks so very much.
0: Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to myministrybreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of Ministry Breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.